Good morning, listeners. I am here with um, someone who has become a good friend and colleague over the past year, and I'm so delighted to share this conversation with you this afternoon. Um, I am here with Pastor Adrian Nelson from Lomax AME Zion Church in Arlington. And over the course of about the last nine months, um, we've had an opportunity to be in conversation, um, for our churches to be in conversation, and to uh, pray and work together um, towards racial reconciliation. Um, and I, I guess for my part, I would say I feel we're in the very beginning stages of that work, but it has been um, a very um, full and holy journey uh, from my end so far. So uh, Pastor Nelson, thank you so much for being here with us on the podcast. My is there, pleasure. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to say just a little bit more about who you are or your context, just to um, introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, so again, Beth, thanks for this opportunity to share with those who will be listening to uh, this podcast. Um, I'm a native Washingtonian. Um, having been born in Washington, D.C., but raised in the suburbs of Montgomery County, primarily. Um, and um, after graduating from high school um, in Rockville, um, I went to college in Hampton, Virginia, um, at a historically Black college, Hampton University, um, where I majored in economics. And then I went on to um, William & Mary um, that Beth and I have in common, Indeed. <laughs> um, for law school at the Marshallwood School of Law at William & Mary. Um, practiced law for about 20 years. And during that time period, I received the call into the ministry. And so I was bivocational for a while. Um, and um, once I began pastoring as I went through our ordination process, and also um, as I uh, began to go to seminary, Found that a bit much. And so um, I ended up leaving the law firm where I was. I opened my own practice in Montgomery County for a little while. And um, then eventually um, I left the law practice altogether. Um, I finished seminary and began pastoring full time. And um, my concepts for pastoring have been 
all very different. Um, I was the pastor of a um, planted church in Columbia, Maryland. Um, then I was a pastor of a smaller um, AME Zion church in what is known as the Scotland community of Potomac, Maryland. Um, and then um, I was moved to Arlington, Virginia, where I'm now at Lomax, which is a, a, a larger church um, that's been in existence for over 153 years. Um, and so I am a Maryland guy. Um, I'm learning my way around Virginia. <laughs> for those of you who are from the area, you know that those who are from Maryland don't go to Virginia and those who are from Virginia don't go to Maryland. So <laughs> I'm learning my way around Virginia and I'm glad to have gotten the chance to uh, meet the folks from St. Michael's, um, which Lomax already had a relationship with before I became the pastor and the opportunity to work further with Beth as we try to work towards racial reconciliation. Thank you so much, Adrian. I'm just going to jump in with some fairly deep questions. And um, we're, as you know, we're talking about forgiveness at St. Michael's um, during the season of Lent. That's, that's our primary focus. Um, so I'd love to invite you to begin by reflecting on how the need to forgive and be forgiven play a role in your life and ministry. And I, I will admit, I don't know what your context for law was for all of those years. So I don't know if your perspective as a lawyer, as a pastor, as, um, as a husband, as a father, and really any angle that you want to take that question from, I know our, our listeners would benefit just, just from hearing your reflections about the need to forgive and be forgiven in your own life and ministry. Wow. Um, that's a complex <laughs> question. <laughs> um, I'll start off. I, I don't know that necessarily anything I did in terms of my law practice really informs me in that area. Um, my specialty was employment law and employment discrimination. Um, I will say that um, I tended to be uh, a very aggressive litigator. And so I have to try to leave that part of me aside as I am now in full-time ministry, but it does come out sometimes. So I usually may have to seek forgiveness because of the way that I approach people um, in terms of my, my background. I have to turn that off. Um, in terms of being a, a father uh, and a husband, um, I guess uh, I try to uh, be the type of person that doesn't have to ask for forgiveness so that I'm thinking before I do something. Um, you know, there are some people that are what we would call um, folks who um, don't think before they act. And I, I try to think a lot before I say and do things um, so that I don't have to seek forgiveness from other people. Um, I think for me though, if we're, also talking about it from kind of a racial lens. Mm -hmm. um, I do find that as a person who's been subjected to a fair amount of discrimination, um, my theology is that I should forgive, mm -hmm. but the human part of me finds it very difficult um, to forgive people um, unless I am able to tell that the person um, didn't know better. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. 
And so if I sense that a person really just did not know better, I'm more inclined to um, forgive. But if the person's operating purely um, out of kind of um, power and privilege and um, have a real blindness to that, um, once I make them aware of that, and it's often in a very active and confrontive way because that's my personality, um, then depending on the response will um, inform whether I feel like forgiveness is appropriate. I'm just aware from what you've just shared, um, the layers of complexity of, of, of how you, um, and, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but, but how you as a black man have to navigate those encounters when, when forgiveness does come up as a topic. And, and I just want to acknowledge and appreciate that the power, the personal experience, the way in which that person deals with you. I mean, that, that is a lot to, um, to have to navigate for any one encounter. Right. And I think that sometimes persons who are not subjected to um, racial discrimination in any way, sometimes wonder why people react the way they do. And you have to understand that it's um, a lifetime of these type of encounters that can make you very impatient with them. So, for instance, um, I'm very clear that I don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes of being a woman mm -hmm. and some of the subtle things that women experience, especially in the workplace. Um, and so you have to always put yourself in the other person's shoes. And oftentimes people are unwilling to do that. Um, it is not unusual for me to go into a grocery store or when we were going into department stores if you ever were in the store, no matter how you're dressed, people will automatically come in and assume you work there and will ask you, where do you locate things? And then when you ask them, why would you ask me that question? Then they have the realization, oh, I made an assumption that you worked in the store. And then when you push back, why did you make that assumption? Yeah. Um, you know, then you are viewed as the person who's combative. And I'm not sure whether um, in those instances, um, most people apologize, but there are some people who push back on you, like your approach to them was uh, too aggressive. Right. Um, case in point, I was at a denominational conference um, when we were staying at a major hotel and um, I was standing at the front desk because I was having a problem with my room key. And a white man came to the desk and um, he was looking for a package that had been delivered to him at the hotel. He was a guest there. And when they told him that he would have to find the shipping dock to get his package, we're both standing on the customer side of the front desk. And he turned around to me and said, um, can you, walk me to the loading dock. And I said, why in the world would you ask me that? He said, you don't work here? Yeah. And so when I told him very plainly, you need to check your privilege, 
because you've made a major assumption about who I am and this is who I am. And I gave him the whole spiel. Then he told me that I was aggressive and that it was a benign comment that he had made. And so that type of person, I'm less inclined to forgive. Sure. Because he's not really walking and owning the mistake that he made. We all have biases. I have biases. There are assumptions that I make about people, but it kind of goes to where I started, which is I may make an assumption about you because we all have um, stereotypes that we operate in, but I'm not going to speak that stereotype until I'm sure that what I'm thinking is true. Right. So um, that's kind of my perspective on when and where I'm inclined to forgive. Yeah, well, and that, I mean, I, my experience of you is, is you are one of the most thoughtful uh, people I know, <laughs> just incredibly thoughtful and, and grounded in your faith um, in, in everything you do. And, and, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned your theology of forgiveness. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm aware just on the few stories you've just, based on the few stories you've just, just shared, um, how how profound that theology must be just, I mean, deep, deep in your bones for you to continue to be able to encounter the, to go through these types of encounters and, and to forgive when necessary. Um, can you, can you describe a little bit of what that theology of forgiveness looks like for you? Yeah, I think I would, I would point to two things. Um, first thing that I would point to is for whatever reason, I've always been drawn to um, Psalm 51, which you know many believe was the psalm that was written by David after he had his episode with Sheba um, and um, engaged in a number of acts to try to cover up his sinfulness. And in that particular psalm, in verse number four, the psalmist says, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so I always begin from a framework that, first of all, that when we do something that requires forgiveness, we have sinned against God. Mm-hmm. And so um, forgiveness has several layers, one of which is um requiring us to recognize our sinfulness and then seek forgiveness of God, repentance from God so that we can move forward. But even though there is the act of sinning against God, you also have inflicted that sin on someone else. And so it's not enough just to ask God forgiveness for forgiveness. We also have to be willing Um, in most instances, to go to the person and say, you know, I recognize my sin and I apologize for what, you know, I've inflicted upon you. So that's one kind of lens that I see it through. But then the second lens that I see it through is really the lens of Christ. And when you think of the notion that all of us are born sinners, um, And the fact that Christ forgave us and died for us and continually forgives us because we all sin, as we say in Methodism, by thought, word, and deed on a daily 
basis, probably an hourly basis, that we're always seeking forgiveness from God through Christ. And if Christ is willing to forgive me, I have to be willing to forgive other people. And so that's an area, as I said, that is still a growth area because Christ forgives us. And sometimes we are conditional in our forgiveness of other people. Um, you know, well, did you demonstrate enough contrition for me? Um, and if you didn't, then I'm not willing to forgive you. Well, thanks be to God that God does not treat us that way. And so it requires us to really grow and it's a process that we have to go through. I really appreciate you naming the layers there of, um, of turning to God for forgiveness and then also having this example in Christ um, that uh, moves us toward, well, I'll just speak for myself, moves me towards something um, more profound than what I would otherwise be able to summon <laughs> on my own. Um, that mentioning those different layers is really helpful. Yeah, I tend to be a, a layered person. I, it's just the way my brain operates. It's helpful. It's really helpful. Well, I, I want to push a little bit further into this conversation about um, race and racial reconciliation, if that's okay. Um, and, and as I mentioned at the beginning, um, we've really, I think just we've, you and I both came into this relationship that existed between Lomax and St. Michael's before either of us arrived at this church, at our churches. Um, and, and over the course of the last nine months, um, with what I would call somewhat of a racial awakening, um, in our country or more heightened awareness, um, we've been able to be in some beginning conversations about, uh, what does it look like to work towards racial reconciliation? Um, and, and you're more than welcome to share kind of any reflections you have about that process with our listeners. But, but I guess my specific question is about the role of forgiveness in this work of racial reconciliation. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts um, you might share about what it looks like for forgiveness to be a part of the work of racial reconciliation. So I'm trying to kind of synthesize some of the comments and reflections of the members of my church yeah. before we began this process and as we are in the midst of the process. And I think the first thing that comes to my mind was, um, you know, among especially um, Black people, there's always the question of what is the motivation when um, there are white people who want to work towards racial reconciliation, um, and are they looking for some form of absolution from us right. to simply make themselves feel better? Are they really looking for making the kingdom of God better as we kind of eradicate racism? So motivation first kind of plays in the, the mind. Um, then the, the next question kind of that comes up is, um, will there be a rush toward forgiveness? Or are we first going to name the thing that requires us to engage in the act of forgiveness? Yeah. And I think for most people, especially Black people, um, we need a good period of time to really name what our experiences have been. 
and to allow those who have the privilege of not being subjected to those experiences to really understand what our story is like. What are the, um, the things that we've been subjected to that really inform who we are, especially on these issues of race. And so um, I guess the feeling I've gotten from members of my congregation is um, we need some time to really share how we've been impacted by racism. But even with that, um, there is always a desire to forgive. Um, I think that I can only speak for, for race, for my people, that Black people tend to be people who want to forgive. Um, we've done it over and over again, historically, especially um, in the ways that we've been treated in this nation. So there's always a desire to forgive. Um, and we definitely get there, but there's a process before we get to that place of being willing to to give a second chance, a third chance, et cetera, um, to those who have been a part of the majority culture that has perpetuated the racism that we've experienced. That's really helpful. And I, um, I just wanna name my profound gratitude um, <laughs> that you and, and the people of Lomax have, um, have taken this risk and showing up and entering into relationship and um, daring to tell some of your stories and, and have that vulnerability. And um, I know it has been deeply transformative for me um, and for my people. And um, I think I can speak faithfully for most of them and saying, we still have so much to learn and we still have so many stories to hear. And um, I think part of what's happening for us is it's sinking in um, the depth and gravity and just the, the many, many things for which we do need to ask forgiveness. I think we're just, uh, we're just coming to grips with all of it. And um, so I just wanna offer my heartfelt thanks for being a partner in conversation and um, your willingness to be open when you certainly didn't have to be <laughs> um, and, and for the ways in which I feel that God has been moving in the midst of these conversations. And I will say that I think um, another, I guess, um, admission that I should make is that I think for most of us, um, when we kind of began this conversation, we really didn't know the composition of the St. Michael's congregation who, who would we be encountering? And I think that, you know, we obviously probably start from a perspective that you're encountering people who may be extremely conservative, who um, may be comfortable in their privilege. And again, I said earlier that we all have stereotypes think that as we began our conversation, it was very clear, at least from my perspective, that St. Michael's tends to be um, a more open and liberal congregation. And so as we say in the Black church, we're probably somewhat preaching to the choir because there's at least an awareness of, you know, racism in the country and a desire to speak about the issue. Um, I think the, the real great work 
has to really take place between um, white people. Yeah. So that those who have educated themselves and made themselves aware of it uh, within the St. Michael's congregation now have to really do the work because there are interactions within the white community that we're not a part of. And not just in the community, but in your own families that require you to be able to re-educate, reorient, um, and push back on some of the narratives that happen. So um, I guess um, our work is really to enlighten so that others who are not Black can enlighten others. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And and a lot of the conversations, kind of one-on-one conversations I've had as follow-ups um, over the past nine months have been, um, I think I use the word like a deeper awareness is what I'm receiving from some of my, my folks. Um, when they walk through the grocery store, when they're at work, um, just the things they hadn't seen before, the things they had not paid attention to before. And, and and wondering how to be the voice that speaks up, how to be the voice that names that discrimination, how to be the person that does not allow that to continue in their presence. Um, so I appreciate you naming that because I think you're right. That is such a huge piece of it is that um, our work does not stay confined to the church. It does not stay confined to these conversations, but it permeates, um, you know, much like our life as disciples, it permeates everywhere we go and everything we do. Um, so again, Adrian, I'm just, I'm so grateful for the vulnerability and faithfulness, faithfulness that, um, you have modeled for the Lomax people and that they have each shown in, um, welcoming us as a part of, you know, as brothers and sisters to be a part of conversations you are having and we are having, um, it has been such a gift. Thank you. Um, I just want to ask you, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at this litany of reconciliation. Uh, I did. Coventry Cathedral that we are using for this season of Lent. And, and I just would love to hear, was there any piece of it that stood out to you or that um, you'd like to share a reflection on? Sure. So um, I did look it over. Um, it's interesting that it does begin with... Um, talking about the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is where we all have to start. We can't enter in thinking that we don't have our own work to do or that there's not forgiveness needed by us as opposed to other people. But the line that really stood out to me was the first um, line, which says, um, the hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class, Father, forgive. Um, and um, for, I can just say that I think we're in an extremely troubling time right now in our country. Um, I am a part of Generation X. Um, I'm 54, born in 1966. So I don't have any type of a recollection about the civil rights movement other than what obviously I've read and studied and watched in clips. Um, and there is um, uh, often those generations that come later think that what they've experienced is worse than what others have experienced. So I may be guilty of that, having not been alive in the 60s and during Reconstruction and other periods. Um, but I really do believe that the soul of our nation is really at peril right now. 
Um, and I think that the reason why I'm so concerned about it is because of the influence that media and technology is having on our society. And um, people seem to be in a place where they're willing to be willfully ignorant. And I don't know how you rescue a society, how you unify a society when people are unwilling to accept facts facts. Um, and it's really troubling to me. I, I recognize that we live in silos. Um, I don't watch Fox News. Um, every now and again, when there's a major event happening, I will switch to see what they're showing. And it's unbelievable to me what the perspective is that they're showing. It would say the same thing about persons who watch MSNBC. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these great divides in our country that are not just racial, but they also have racial impact. And I just don't know where we go um, as a country. Um, I really think that there has to be some type of um, effort that has to be um, intentional um, of pushing back on this narrative that's based upon just falsities. Right. And so it really, it really disturbs me. And I think one of the things that um, I don't know whether people are familiar with this concept, but there is a concept which is known as white lash. Mm -hmm. um, and the concept is the notion that whenever there are substantial gains among African-Americans that follows, what follows that is a period taken from the term backlash, sure. white lash, where um, there's a pushback among the majority or privileged society to try to keep things the way they are. And so obviously there is a belief among some that the you know, election of Trump in, as the 45th president was a reaction to the election of President Obama um, and that that white lash is continuing now with um, what has happened with the election of Joe Biden and especially including Kamala Harris as um, the vice president of the United States. We're in this period where people are using coded language yeah. to talk about you know, wanting to restore America to what it was um, uh, and greatness and losing American culture. Those are all coded words for a time when um, whites were the majority, there were other minorities, and there's a fear that we are going to become a majority minority country. And that is where a lot of this is coming from. And if we don't name it as racism and xenophobia um, and um, sexism, et cetera, um, if we walk around the edges of this, this don't really name it, we're going to fall into the abyss. Yeah. And so I'm one who's impatient for polite language. Um, I think we have to call it what it is. We have to shock people into awareness of who they are and what they are espousing so that they can come to terms with their sin, because I do believe that any ism is a sin. Um, and so that is what really concerns me at this time in our country. It's really, really helpful to hear you um, 
reflect on that so just so clearly, um, not as uh, I think oftentimes we describe it as political um, conflict and try and confine it to a certain sphere of society. But I just really appreciate you naming it as something that permeates um, every component of the society in which we live and, and your invocation to us to be the prophetic voices of naming all of the isms for exactly what they are. Um, the stakes are far too high. And, and so I really appreciate you, um, your, your clarity and your willingness to, um, remind us what it means to be disciples of Jesus and that, and that the stakes are just too high. Um, so thank you for that, for that word. Well, as you know, we are, um, in the season of Lent right now, and our theme that we're focusing on at Lomax um, is the question of John Wesley of um, how is it with your soul? And I think that's a question that we could actually ask our nation and the greater society. And it's quite interesting that um, when President Biden announced his candidacy, he said that the reason why he was running as he was concerned about the soul of the nation. Yeah. Um, whether you support him or not, whether you supported a different candidate or not, I really do think that um, he was very prophetic in his own campaign viewpoint that we really are at a point where we have to think about what is the soul of our nation? How are we faring? Because um, we cannot continue to operate in this way, um, if you even look at the, the makeup of the Senate right now, which is literally a 50-50 split, it's, you can't get more clear about where the, there's a major divide. And we've got just absolutely vastly different viewpoints. And I don't know how we begin to have a common viewpoint. I think it's really gonna be a challenge. Yeah. Absolutely. I am so grateful for your time and for your thoughtfulness um, and, and for sharing your experiences with us, Adrian, um, for your vulnerability. And again, for uh, being willing to be in conversation with me and with the people of St. Michael's. Um, it is an incredible gift. I know it will be a gift for our listeners to hear from you. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, You've given me much to think about and to continue to pray about, and I'm grateful for our continued partnership. Likewise, and again, thank you for the invitation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive. Our envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, 
forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. <laughs>